0: Our readings this morning give us an invitation, you might say, to take a look at the love that both fuels and focuses our Lenten practices. You know, those practices of making ourselves present day in and day out, maybe through the little devotional things you're reading or whatever you might be doing for Lent this season. I think these readings show up here in the, the fourth week of Lent to help us think about uh, this love that fuels and focuses our practices, our gospel reading said that Nicodemus came to Jesus at night, and you know anybody who knows anything about the Gospel of John knows that John, more than the synoptic writers, loves imagery and analogy and allegory and metaphor and you know all these sort of imprecise uh, ways of speaking, but that's a lot of way, a lot of Times why people love John. And so when he says to us that Nicodemus came at night, he, meant, he means to tell us something. And I like the way that uh, Peterson gets this in the message where he says, this is the crisis we're in. Godlight light streamed into the world, but men and women ran for the darkness. They were not really interested in pleasing God. Everyone who's addicted to denial and illusion hates God-light and won't come near it, fearing a painful exposure. Well, what if in our Lenten practices, I know it's happened for me, I can't be the only one in the room. What if in our moments of particularly paying attention, we find our own sort of night-like experiences? Maybe doubt or desperation or despair over something. So then it raises the question, what kind of knowledge would free you and invite you, allow you to, or facilitate you to bring into the light the dark things of your life? I mean, what if God loves you in a way that includes every step of your journey, not just the bright bits when you're at your best. But what if it includes every part of your journey? What if the whole trip of your life gets in on God's love and is somehow wrapped up in that love and used somehow for eternal good? So just stop and think with me for a moment you maybe as you review your own spiritual life. What about unfulfilled dreams and the kind of disillusionment they cause in us and sometimes the doubt they raise about God? What about for some of of us in this room who've heard the saying, you know, get a life and we've tried to make a life and so far it's only disappointment. What about all the various roads we've taken to try to find meaning in life and it sometimes just leads to desperation? What about our deepest hurts that cause us, if we're honest, to doubt God? Some of us in the room have gained and lost love And it's made it hard for them to trust God. What about just the basic times of frustration and hopelessness where we're tempted to ignore God? Or just all the ways we've tried to fill the emptinesses in our lives only for the aches to continue? Or what about those of us in the room who've had long periods of loneliness? Painful tears. Some people, when they review their life, can actually see big chunks of darkened years. And they can find things in their life when they're tempted to turn their back on God in a kind of unbelief. Well, what if? What if in spite of how that actually feels to us, these things were not spiritually disqualifying? But what if somehow in the love of God, in the outstretched arms of the crucified Messiah, that he gathers up all those bits of life what if they get all rolled up into God's healing, saving, delivering love? I mean, what if this isn't actually a platitude? What if this isn't sort of an, uh, kind of an evangelical you know, um, statement of who we are? But what if it's just actually true that God so loved the world, that He gave His only-begotten Son, that whoever would believe in him should not perish, and that doesn't mean go to hell. It it might include going to hell, but it doesn't specifically mean go to hell. What if it means that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that you wouldn't live a perishing kind of life that has a momentum that actually can lead one to hell? The antonym for perishing is not heaven. The antonym for perishing is human life as God intended it. It's a kind of um, flourishing. It doesn't mean being rich. It doesn't mean having, you know, six kids instead of two. It just means a kind of human flourishing that God intended. Well, this is what the psalmist is getting at this morning when he says they cried out to the Lord and he saved them from their distress. He healed them. He rescued them from their dead-end lives. So just for the fun of it, I mean, I would love to do a Billy Graham imitation, you know, on John three sixteen. But just for the fun of it, what if we don't do Billy Graham What if we unpack it a bit in the context in which it arises in Lent? Let's let's unpack it a bit in in the season in which it comes in, which encourages us a kind of spiritual reflection. So first thing, God so loved. I was thinking, I guess it was yesterday when I was working on this, you know, the part of Costa Mesa that Debbie and I live in just across the freeway, there's lots of little old apartments around and they sit very close to the street. And I walk my dogs all the time and it can actually be awkward, you know, walking by these apartments because you can see right in there. So I just want you to picture with me, you're, you know, you're walking down a street like that or something and you look in a kitchen window and you see this father in there just absolutely enraged just like angry at the whole world, throwing pans and kicking things, destroying everything. And then a son walks in and goes, Dad, calm down. That is the great misjudgment of the father that sits in many of your hearts and causes great spiritual confusion. Now, permit me an off-color word here, but I just know that the way most people see faith is God is really pissed, and Jesus somehow fixed it, and nothing could be further from the truth. It is God who so loved that he gave his son. This is not about an angry father who really doesn't like you. Well, but now Jesus has died, so now he has to see you through this lens of the crucified Messiah, and so, well, okay, I guess I'll let you off the hook. But that's what that is actually the imagination that sits in, I think, maybe most Christians' minds. And it is really destructive to our spiritual life. For some of you, it's, it really is an explanation, not the explanation, but probably an, an, an explanation for your sort of halting um, fits of starts and stops in actually following Jesus. John said in his letters, this is how God showed his love amongst us. This is how God showed his love. Not the son showing the love to placate a really angry dad, but this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. So that's the first thing. In your Lenten practices, you're not doing it against the backdrop of a God who really doesn't like you much. You're doing it against the backdrop of a God, a father, a creator, the one God who created everything, who loved you so much that he sent his one and only son that you would flourish. So who'd he do this to? Well, the text said he sent his son to the whole world. There's a whosoever in this. Well, aren't you glad the verse doesn't read, for God so loved the rich? Or that for God so loved the insiders? Or for God so loved the thin? Or the sober. Some of you in this room are really glad God didn't say that he so loved the sober. Or the successful or the spiritually attuned. It doesn't. It just sort of simply and happily says, for God so loved the world. And there's lots of Greek terms in the New Testament for world. Well, not lots, but there's a few. One that would make us to think he loved the earth, you know, like dirt and soil and seas. Others that would make us think that... um, that that he loved um, creation, others that would make us think all of mankind, and that's this word, every single person. But if you're thinking, you think, well, wait a minute, there has to be a limit. There has to be some sort of boundary to God's love, right? I mean, wouldn't you think so? I mean, the Father can't be that loving. I mean, there has to be some boundary. Well, David the adulterer never found it. Paul the persecutor never crossed the line. Peter the denier never found the boundary. What if it's just a lot bigger than we think it is? Well, next we're told that God sent, or he loved the world so much, sorry, that he sent his declarations. God loved the world so much that he sent his rules. For God loved the world so much that he sent his dictates or edicts. No, for God so loved the world that he gave us flesh-wrapped divinity. Incarnation, incarnate, to in flesh. God put himself in his son and gave us not an abstract idea, but a person. So come on, just... Let's get real here. You're sitting in a Lenten practice, and maybe what you feel is guilt. Or or a worse abstraction, shame. And I can almost guarantee you that you feel that against the backdrop of some sort of proposition, like a speed limit. But what if those feelings of, yeah, I'm getting it wrong. I mean, the psalmist the passage in Ephesians, the passage in Numbers, it's implicit in the gospel reading. Yeah, we blow it, we get it wrong. We sin, we miss the mark. But against what backdrop? Like rules on a gym wall, you know? Don't spit your gum out on the basketball court. So we're, you know, we're, we're now living against a set of propositions. No, it's always relational. It always is meant to draw us back to a person, And a a specific, concrete person, a father who loved us so much that he gave his only begotten son, that we would not live a perishing kind of life, but a flourishing kind of life in this life and in the life to come. Now, we got to deal for a moment with this word perish. Um, As I said, it's, it's not a synonym for hell, but it does remind us that all throughout the New Testament are these uncomfortable words for those of us who now live in a radically pluralistic world. And I get it. I get that it's really uncomfortable to think about sheep and goats and wheat and tares and darkness and light. I get it. It's really uncomfortable. When before we had CNN and we knew about Buddhists around the world, Before we had CNN and really knew about the massive amount of Muslims in the world, you know, before we had the New Age movement and all these sort of new sort of spiritualities came into America, it was kind of easy to say, yeah, we're going to heaven, everybody else is going to hell. But now that we're around all this pluralism and it's only going to increase, it's hard to hold this somehow in our mind because, I mean, didn't I just say there doesn't appear to be a barrier a boundary to God's love. And so we're in a kind of mystery. But again, I just want you to know, perish doesn't mean cease to exist. Perish means something like to lose all the divine purpose intended in your life. Like a gas gauge for it to just all go out to empty. That's perishing. Everything that the love of the Father intended for you, not just for all mankind, but you. Think of your life, your actual present life, the one you're living right now, the only life you have. There's a divine intention for that. And perishing is that that being sort of snuffed out. And of course, that has an eternal dimension to it as well. But in this life, there's a kind of perishing that can happen and a kind of flourishing. And that's what, of course, next, is not that we would perish, but that we would have eternal life. And I remember the illustration I used a couple weeks ago about the plant and the cat and, you know, fully human. This is eternal life. The kind of life that John's referring to, we actually see in our Ephesians reading this morning. And this is, I think, a great basis for sort of a Lenten, you know, alignment checkup, where at the very end, if you look at your Ephesians reading, it says, For we're God's handiwork. That is to say that we're, we're the creation of his hands, we're something that is made, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Well, as you're going through your, your Lent sort of examinations this year, I wanna to commend to you this sort of thought, what if works, which is such a dirty word amongst evangelicals, and if you're a reformed person and use that word, you're likely to get shot, um, but what if works are to faith what exhaling is to inhaling? So the initiation is, God so loved. And my response is just simply exhaling. I can't take any credit for that. I didn't create the oxygen. I didn't create the capacity for dealing with the oxygen. I didn't do anything hardly. Except for take it in. And so what if works, just, you know, being God's handiwork, expressing how he made it, is simply what exhaling is to inhaling? What if it's simply what gratitude is to a gift? What if works are simply what cooperation is to divine intention? Well I said this morning that we're that I thought the readings help us to focus on the love that fuels and, and focuses Lent. And one of the great reminders of Lent is that though there was, you know, a snake put on a pole and people were healed, and though there and, and that of course is a foreshadowing of Jesus who was put upon the cross and we are healed. Lenten sits in the in the church calendar for a lot of reasons, but one of them is a reminder that evil wasn't completely healed in Jesus. It's, the way to think about this, I think, helpfully is to think of the period between D-Day, you know, the invasion of Normandy in World War II? The period between D-Day and V-Day. It's about 11 months from, I think, what is it, June of 43 to May of 44, or something like that. And those, those were 11 of the bloodiest months in all of World War II. But really, after D-Day, the battle was over. I mean, it it was, you know, it was going to win. Kind of like you hear about Mitt Romney today, it's over. Well, they'll keep doing these primaries, but, you know, it's over. I I don't know if it is, but that sort of thing is after D-Day, it really was over, but then you live in this time where people really are trying their best to live a life Fulfilling dreams, taking roads, experiencing hurts, loves that are gained and lost, frustrations. These things are continuing to happen. So what do we do? Do we just try harder? Um, Trying harder is a double recipe for disaster. Because if you win, you're likely to just become a Pharisee. Seriously, if you win by trying harder, you're likely just to become a really unkind person who doesn't like anybody around you who's not trying as hard as you. That's the truth. Or you'll fail, and in which case, you'll call yourself a failure. But what if, we, what if the answer here isn't trying harder? What if what Lent isn't getting us to do is to try harder? What if Lent is getting us rather to train to apprentice ourselves to Jesus, to become his student or follower and disciple, so that this happens again in this relational context against the backdrop of a loving father, not trying harder to keep rules that are posted on a wall somewhere. So how do we do this? Well, the Numbers passage and the gospel reading, they give us a clue. Look upon. Look upon and trust. Trust. Why do we do silence? Look upon. Why do we do solitude? Oh, we're particularly religious. No, look upon. It's not for an accident the church for 2,000 years has practiced these kinds of things. They're not the deluxe version of Christianity. They're fundamental. He put them on a cross and said, look upon. And you can't look upon when your life is full of anxious. Neurotically driven activity, it can't be done. So Lent, Lent invites us to just pause, look upon, and trust. Place your confidence in. Cling to the notion that God picks up all the naughty bits of your life, or that God picks up all the bits of your life that didn't work out the way you imagined it. The roads you traveled, the things you tried to do to have a life that didn't work out, that God somehow picks that all up. So look upon and Trust, cling to, rely on, confide in him. You're never gonna confide in a bunch of rules on a wall that the vice principal put up there. But you might confide in a person if you believed that he loved you so much that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believed in him, that is to say placed their confidence in him and followed him, would not live a life that is perishing, but would have an eternal kind of life, a life of human flourishing in the way that God intended.